Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We are beginning a new sermon series this morning entitled, The Unknown God, but then if you looked at it, the un is stricken out. And that is by design or purpose. If you're somebody who's part of, uh, you get the emails from the church, or if you are connected to us on Facebook, then you've already seen this sermon series at least talked about and advertised a little bit. But the design is very, very important, and it is intentional, and it is because of this. God intends for you to know him. And many of us approach our spirituality and our relationship with the Lord as if it is kind of a mystery that we're never going to be able to solve. And there's certainly things about God and the way that he moves that are going to be things that are out of our comprehension and experience. If we were able to reduce him into just kind of checking the boxes, he would cease to be who he was. But sometimes we approach this with such a futility that we, we are not going to be certain maybe that we really know God or whether he's active in our lives at all. And one of the things that I found as a pastor is a common conversation that I've had in, in the years that I've had in ministry is individuals who have engaged in conversations with me who really land on this type of a thought or a question, hey, pastor, how do I know if God is speaking to me? Or how do I know if, if God is in this decision or he's directing me in this way? Or how do I know that God was moving in that place? Or where was God when this horrible thing happened in my past, or there, there, there's a lot of questions, and at the heart of it, what they want to know is they, they, they're trying to wrap their minds around with some level of certainty that they really know who God is and what he's doing, and that they can actually know that. And I think that that's a common thing for, for all of us in our, in our journey of faith and in our faith development and in our growth that we bump into from time to time, and that is made all the more difficult in kind of the time that you and I live. The amount of information that is available, and then the number of different ideologies and different ways of thinking and uh, different kind of constructs of looking at life in general that are just readily available uh, to you and I. I was looking at some uh, Barna research over uh, the last week, and, and Barna is a company that does a lot of uh, research that's faith-based, looks at kind of the health of the church and just kind of the general thoughts and ideas of culture and kind of wraps itself around those things concerning mostly that type uh, of research and metrics. And over the last 10 years, one of the things that's been consistently produced in the research data that, um, that Barna puts out is a growing amalgamation when it comes to Christianity and competing systems of ideology. And that might be like a big word, uh, kind of amalgamation. What that means is, is that what it means to kind of really know and follow Jesus is being added to by all of the other different ways that people think and philosophize and kind of prioritize and perspective and relate kind of the world, that it's all starting to bleed together. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that uh, came out recently was a, a research that Barna did where uh, there, there was still kind of this idea that in the United States, it's like 69% of the United States of people polled would still identify themselves as practicing Christians. 
which is really interesting when you look at the rest of the themes, uh, morally and otherwise, of our nation, it would suggest that that should be a much lower number. If you look at that against kind of church attendance and uh, Bible literacy and all the other things that you would think that might go along with that, like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, there, there's this there's still a very large number of our nation that would say, no, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. But then as you begin to kind of delve into what those thoughts are and how they understand God or how they relate to it, those paths diverge very, very quickly. In fact, the research that I looked at, there was a, a, a strong contingent, upwards of 25% of that uh, original grouping that would say that they are practicing followers of Jesus that would identify strongly with statements that weren't biblical or even uh, uh, God-centric, where they would align more with a, a secularist perspective or a relativist perspective, uh, where they would be more of a universalist type of an idea or a new spiritism type of an idea. And what they were finding is that there is a broad difference between somebody who's saying, yeah, I know the truth, and then the truth kind of becomes whatever they want it to become. And in the middle of that, all of those compete, competing things, you and I, we live in that environment. We, we engage in those conversations. Uh, I've shared this story at different times, but I was uh, at an, an, an outdoor uh, uh, art show uh, up in the, the Lyons, Colorado area one time, and uh, it had been particularly kind of cold and dreary for several days in a row, and now all of a sudden it was like this beautiful kind of spring day that was showing up. It was warm, not a cloud in the sky, sky, and it was super sunny, and I was out, and there was this woman that I engaged in a conversation, and I was just like, oh man, I am so glad that the sun is out today, and she's like, yeah, I'm a sun worshiper, and it took me a second because I thought what she meant was she likes to lay out in the sun and get suntan. Because in you know, Southern California where I grew up, that would have been a normal thing, right? Like, oh, a sun worshiper is just somebody who lays out on the pool deck. No, that's not what she meant. She meant kind of a new agey pseudo-spiritualism. Like, I worship the sun as if it's a deity and an entity, kind of like a Mother Earth type thing. Like, she was, we weren't speaking the same language. And I did think for a second, I was like, well, I'm a sun worshiper too, but I worship the Son of God. And I knew that we weren't talking the same language. I didn't say that out loud, but sometimes pastors want to get cheeky too, so I thought it, and then I let the Holy Spirit say, it's better not to say that, and so I listened to his prompting there. But we live in, that's the world that we live in right now, competing belief systems that are entertained by so many people and are hitting us from so many different places that we can be intimidated with the idea that we can really know God that we can really know. And I, I, I just start with that because I, I would ask this question, and you don't need to answer this with any definitiveness right this moment, and you don't need to certainly do it out loud, but, but how about you? Do you have doubts? Do you have questions? You know, are, are you wrestling with some of the things that seem okay in the world around us, but you know kind of intuitively aren't really okay when it lines up either with Scripture or your understanding of who God is and how He's supposed to work? You know, do you, do you kind of fall into this idea, well, it's like, I, I, I believe in God, but I don't, really, I don't really know him. I'm not even really sure that I can. And we're starting our series with Psalm 98, verse 2, and it's a, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty provocative statement that gets made because of the time, because of the when in human history that it gets made. In Psalm 98, verse 2, the psalmist writes these words. He says, the Lord has made known his salvation. 
The Lord has made it known, made it evident, his salvation, the way that he heals, the way that he rescues, the way that he restores, the way that he redeems, the way that he sets free, all of the things that are wrapped up in this idea of salvation in an Old Testament Hebrew sense, and then a kind of a growing understanding of what it would mean to be saved, whole, set free, put back into proper place when it comes to the Greek understanding of it and the way that it's used in the New Testament. The psalmist, it, he has made his salvation known and he's revealed his righteousness to the nations. He's, he's demonstrated himself. He's shown his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his grace. All of those things kind of wrapped up in this type of a statement. And you and I, uh, for, the, for the most part, I would say that, that everybody here, I would, I would assume, would be like, yeah, I, I agree with that. I believe that God has shown his salvation to me. Maybe you're in a place where you're seeking and you're kind of moving uh, into that journey, but you're kind of open to that idea. But if you've received Christ as your savior, and if you've kind of moved into that type of relationship with him, you wouldn't really have any problem uh, agreeing with this type of a statement. I find it provocative because of when it was stated. Because this wasn't after Jesus. It's not his ministry. It's not after Jesus' death and resurrection. This, is, this was long before that. The psalmist with certainty was able to say, man, God's already revealed himself. He's already shown his propensity towards salvation. Man, what a bold statement. I wonder how he arrived on that. Have you ever thought stuff like that? How was he talking about salvation before salvation in Christ? Whoa. Like, how, how would he know that? How, how would he uh, have that type of certainty about who God is? And what we're going to do for the next several weeks is we're going to go through a series that begins to lay a platform where you and I, with certainty, can begin to stand and say, you know what, I know God. I know, that, I know who God is and how he works in my life. And I may not know everything, and I may not know, have, all, have all the questions, and I may know less than the person next to me, but what I do know, I know for certain, and I can grow in that knowledge and understanding because God has gone out of his way. Listen to me. God has gone out of his way to make himself known. It's a, it's a wild thought if you really stop and think about it. When you look at all of the other kind of uh, religious ideations, when you study Greek and Roman mythology, if you study paganism, if you study all of these other kind of occult and things like this, the, those ideas are all wrapped around this idea that the deities are trying to remain aloof and apart. In fact, a, a common thread in human history around those types of ideas has to do with mystery that it's out of reach and you can't really know. And only those with really special knowledge can kind of get into the inner circle. And the complete opposite is true of who God is and how he wants to work in your life. He has gone out of his way to make himself known. In essence, God has, uh, God has approached you and I as if he is clapping and singing and woo, woo, look at here, look at here. Like the complete opposite of every other kind of construct that would say that he would hide himself and you have to like really go through some type of uh, aesthetic appeasement to get to him. God, like God has made himself known. And we're going to be looking at that, that he's gone out of his way to make himself known, that he is not the unknown God, that he intends to be the known God, and that you and I can know him and grow evermore in that knowing and relating to him. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get that out. Just a moment, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up 
your Bible app and go ahead and raise those up for everybody. And I'm just going to assume if you don't have your Bible or your Bible app that you've memorized Acts chapter 17, good on you. You get the benefit of the doubt from Pastor this morning. But Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would speak to us through your word today. Lord, that you would give us a curiosity and a growing certainty that we can know you. Lord, that we can know you. Lord, give us courageous faith to take steps and put it into action this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to be reading a number of verses from this context that aren't going to be on the screen. I'm going to be setting kind of the stage for where we're going to be going in this series, and then we'll be looking at a few specific verses Together, But in Acts chapter 17, one of the things that we see is we see Paul's response to a context that really is just like ours. We're going to see Paul's response to a context that has the same type of questions, the same type of kind of context and difficulties, the same type of all different ideas kind of coming together in one place and getting all wrapped up and kind of lost And the way that he addresses that and the way that he encouragingly reminds his hearers of how God has intentionally and purposefully revealed himself. How God intentionally and purposefully reveals himself. And in Acts chapter 17, if you were going to read the whole chapter, this would be one of Paul's missionary journeys. And so he's bouncing through Greece and he's planting churches. And one of the things that's keeping him moving so quickly is that when he comes to a place and begins to get a foothold for Christianity, people don't like it, and so they stir up trouble. And so that's actually happened to him a couple times in Acts chapter 17. He was in Thessaloniki, and then he was in Berea, and there were some troublemakers that were kind of following him now from place to place. Basically, Paul's on tour, and they're going to all the tour stops and trying to cause problems for him. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, he lands in Athens. So he lands in Athens, Greece. And when he lands there, he sends a number of his his friends who are traveling with him. He sends them off with greetings for others. They're going to go and they're going to talk to Silas and Timothy and presumably bring them. And they're all going to kind of meet up together because he's had this whole group on this missionary journey. And they've kind of gone in some separate directions doing some different work. And so he finds himself in Athens. And it's really, it's almost like a layover stop right? He's there. He's waiting for his boys to all get back, and he's just kind of hanging out in Athens. And Athens was in many ways a city that was a crossroads of the Roman Empire. It was a place where all of these different roads of trade and commerce came together, and Athens was uh, really a, a center of intellectual thought and understanding. It was like an intellectual epicenter where all the different ideas, not just commerce, not just trade, but all the different ideas of the empire were all coming to intersect into this one place. And so it was a center for really exotic thought. Uh, It was a center um, uh, for, for ideation. Just like anything and everything was kind of on the topic. And in fact, in Acts chapter 17, when Luke is talking about Athens, he says that the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent all day long just talking about whatever the newest idea was. Okay, so this would be like the, just the, the newest fad, the newest idea, the newest ideology, the newest thought, the newest religion. They just spent all their time, the newest philosophy, unpacking all of those things. And so Athens was, was really like that, and it fancied itself as this learned uh, intellectual epicenter 
And there was a polytheism that was embraced there that was really built off of the Greco-Roman mythology where they just had this pantheon of gods. And then it was just like anything and everything that was brought in. One of the unique things about the Roman Empire is that they allowed different locations to maintain kind of their religion as long as they just said that the, C uh, the Caesar was the top. You could still worship all your other stuff as long as you just said, Hail Caesar, we'll call that good, and you could do whatever you wanted. Because they knew that if they came in and messed with people's religious ideology that there would be an uprising. They, they'll fight over that. But if you let them go to church, they'll still pay their taxes, so we'll just let them go to church. It's that type of an idea. And so Rome used that as an appeasement. And so any and every idea was something that was welcome. And in Athens, it was like the more the better. Like it was just this wild circus of intellect. And it's against that background that Paul finds himself. And in verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It's a really unique thought, I think, in kind of the narrative in Acts, because every city that Paul went to was full of idols. Everyone had a temple to Artemis. Everyone had a temple to this Greek god. Everyone had kind of this different kind of nuanced type of spiritism or spiritual pursuit that was a part of it. Everywhere Paul went was like that. But Athens, it was like so much so, more than every other place that Scripture says that Paul was like distressed. He, he was super kind of put off by it. And if you know anything about Paul, like Paul didn't just kind of sit around, did he? Paul, Paul was kind of a, a, a mover and goer and a doer, and so he begins to do what he always did, and that's to share the good news of Jesus. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, that he immediately began to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and he did it the way that he always did. When he would go into a new city, he would go to the synagogue, he would go to the, the Jews and people who had a framework for who Yahweh was and an understanding of what God's salvation might look like, and then he begins to speak about Jesus as God incarnate, the Son of God, bringing salvation and going through the whole process of his death and resurrection and leading them into those good news. So he begins there and then he goes out into just the marketplace where any and every passerby would be there and he begins to just kind of street witness. He begins to street preach and that was his common practice. Now in Athens, they were always looking for the latest idea. They were hungry for this new thing and this was a new thing in Athens that people hadn't really been buzzing about. And so in verse 18, it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So he began to engage in philosophical discourse with Stoics and Epicureans. They began to have this conversation. And then he gets invited to what is called the Areopagus. It's like a center of intellectual philosophical discourse where they would come together and they would just kind of process all of these different ideas, both Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, and then kind of these other tendrils of spirituality that would kind of drift in from the Roman Empire. And so he's invited to come and present there because they're like, hey, what you're talking about, we haven't heard about before. This is, this is really new and radical. And they love the latest and greatest ideas, not because they want to ascribe to any, but because they want to be presumed as thoughtful and intellectual. And so Paul comes in, into that place, and in just a moment, we're going to look at how he addresses them. But I think the background is really important because you and I live in much the same way. Athens was this crossroads of all these different ideas that just all came to this point, and it was because geographically and the way that the Roman Empire worked, it was all coming together. But you and I, we don't even need a geographic point for that to happen now because information is at the click of a button. 
Any, any spiritist idea, any secular idea, any relative idea, like any philosophical, like you can Google it, you can Siri it, like you, you can go to, to, to those things. Like right now, all of those things are coming together. In your daily life and in your interactions with people, we're bombarded by all of these different types of ideas. And it brings us to this place where a lot of stuff is getting blurred and mixed together. And so the way that Paul responds, I think, is really helpful for us because he actually addresses ways that God can be known with certainty. Now, the Stoics that are mentioned here in Scripture, the Stoics that were mentioned here in Acts, Stoicism was a school of philosophical thought that started in Athens. It's like the epicenter of it. And the same thing with the Epicureans. Epicureanism started in Athens. So both of these philosophical schools of thought were like, this is their headquarters. And what's interesting is the Stoics, when you really get down to it, they were a school of thought where they believed that the highest virtue or the greatest good was based on knowledge. And in fact, the deity that you were trying to align yourself to was called the divine capital R, reason. That sounds really familiar with a lot of different philosophical ideologies today. It wouldn't be called stoicism. We'll talk about what those might look like in some other places, but the highest pursuit is knowledge, what you can know for sure. And the stoics were kind of contrast to that. They weren't as concerned with knowledge, although they had a prominent place for it, but really the stoics had uh, their highest good, uh, or excuse me, the Epicureans, their, their highest good was advocating a restrained form of hedonism, which means that you pursued pleasure and avoided pain. And the best way to do that was to know for certainty kind of what's what. So the uh, Epicureans, to avoid pain, they avoided ideas like sin or even death or punishment in the afterlife. They avoided all of those things because that causes pain to the way that I think about and live my life, and I'm going to avoid that, and I'm going to pursue pleasure. So the Stoics were pursuing knowledge and reason. The Epicureans were pursuing a hedonistic pleasure, although it was tempered. It wasn't just rampant hedonism. And then there was a pushback in Greek philosophy called the skeptics. And the skeptics were exactly what you would think they are. They're like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. But their pushback would be this. You, you think that the highest pursuit is reason? I don't think that you could ever actually know. You think that the highest pursuit is the avoidance of, of pain and the pursuit of pleasure? I don't believe that you could actually know. You can't know. It's uncertain. And so those are some of the things that Paul was bumping into in Athens. And they weren't the only things that are there. But they're very similar to the roots of some of the main ideas that are part of your culture, our culture today. Like secularism, the highest pursuit is scientific certainty. The, it's the reason of science. Relativism has to do with this idea that, you know, if, if it works for you and it's all the way that you look at it, that that's going to work. Even when you and I bump into somebody who would profess to be an atheist, did, did you know that's a relatively new world concept and ideology that atheism didn't even come about until the 18th century and it's an offshoot from the age of reason? It's a pursuit of you can only know what you know, and what I know is that I don't know that that other stuff is true, and so this, I, I just, no, nothing's, nothing's true, or nothing exists. It's a, really, it's a really interesting thing that when you look at secularism, and if you look at atheism, like the root of it really is this idea of a pursuit of knowledge. 
And then you've got this whole expression of things in our culture that would tied, be tied to a, a big statement called, I would call it universalism. It's this idea that uh, everything's going to work out in the end. And that blanket statement, hey, you guys, you're all right, and they're all right, and don't worry, everything's going to be all right. It's, just, it's a big, broad statement that says, there's no pain, it's okay, just enjoy what you have. And that gets expressed in so many different ways in our culture. There's a, a universalism that says it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something, you're going to get to heaven. There is a Unitarian Universalism that says that everybody's searching for their truth and everybody is looking to grow spiritually and as long as you find what works for you, then it works for you and so it works. There's even a Christian Universalism that says in the end, Jesus is just gonna pay everybody's debt anyway so it doesn't matter how you play or what the tab you is that run up or whether you even accept him as your Lord and Savior, you can't do anything about it. He's just gonna cover the tab at the end. So party as you would if you had an open tab. See, that, that's the world that, that we live in right now. And then one of the dominant things that you kind of get to with somebody who would say, hey, I believe in God, but I'm not really sure I can know anything about him, it would fall into what would be called agnosticism. And an agnostic is somebody who believes that God can exist and, and God has a nature, but, but he's God, and so you could never really know. And if you can't know, then you can't really know for certain. And so it's just like, he, probably, but maybe not. It's the skeptic that says you can't know. And against that backdrop, okay, it's the same backdrop that you and I are, are living in. Paul addresses this, and I'm going to go through this quickly, but here's how he responds. He responds to things that for you and I today would relate to different ways of understanding God. And the study of God, the big statement on that, or the big word that addresses that is a word called theology. Usually we think of like stuffy people up reading books, you know, in a monastery or something like that. But everybody to some degree is a theologian. Anybody who has an idea or a concept about who God is or who he is not in some way is expressing a theology. It's your study of God. And how Paul responds to this whole backdrop is, is this way. In Acts chapter 17, verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And if you study Paul's missionary journey, you would know what he did there. Whenever he would come into a town and he would go to the Greek synagogue, he would begin with the Old Testament scriptures. He would begin with the scriptures of, of, of the Jewish canon, and he would begin to, the, from there, build out who God is and then show how that was fulfilled in Jesus. And so what he would be doing there, in that sense, is he would be doing, uh, he, he would be showing them how has God revealed himself in his word. And theologically speaking, we would call that biblical theology. So in that context, he would go in and he would use biblical theology. Now, when he gets invited into the conversation with the Stoics and the Epicureans, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't quote any Old Testament scripture. He doesn't bring any Jewish context or language into it. Why? Because it's not common ground. It doesn't make any sense to them. And there's other ways that God has revealed himself. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, I want you to look at this. It says that as he begins to speak in the Areopagus, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he begins with a grand statement of who God is and the way that God has shown himself or revealed himself, catch this, in creation. It's a, cre it's a creation narrative statement. God reveals himself through his word, and theologically speaking, we would call that biblical theology, but God reveals himself through creation, through, na through nature. It's called his revelation in creation, and the theology would be called natural theology. Now, you can't know everything from God from taking a walk in the park, but you can discern some things. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the way that God has demonstrated himself, the way that he has revealed himself in creation, means that nobody has an excuse to not know him. As Paul builds out his, his, his really his theological treatise in Romans, he begins with natural creation. And that's a good place for him to start with the Epicureans and the Stoics because they would have their own kind of creative narratives and they would all be built on kind of their mythology and they would all be centered on what they had built with their own hands as their temples. And Paul says, hey, no, there's something that you are missing there. Before he begins this in, in that passage, he, he, he speaks to them, hey, I believe that you're religious, you've got all these ideas, you even have an altar to an unknown God. If you read the rest of Acts 17 for yourself and read the whole of the context, he begins with that idea that there was, they had so many gods and so many ideas, they had one altar that said to the unknown God because they were like, we're, I'm sure we're missing somebody and we just don't want them to be left out. And Paul's like, the one that you've left out is the only one that is. And let me tell you about him. And so he begins to build from there, but he uses creation theology. In verse 26, he says this, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so he begins to talk about Adam from Genesis, but he doesn't quote that scripture because it doesn't make any context sense for them. But he starts talking about the way that God has moved, look at this, through human history. The way that God has moved. He's appointed the times and the history and the boundaries of lands, the, the rise and fall of nations. This is what Paul's talking about here. There's a revelation of God in his word. There's a revelation of God in creation. There's a revelation of God in experience. And there's a lot of things that are tied to this, but this type of theology, this would be historical theology. How God was moving in his people throughout time and history that demonstrates to us who he is. And some of that we can actually get, it aligns with and comes out of scripture, but there are a whole host of other sources of history and understanding that all support an expression and a revelation of who God is. It's awesome. Same thing happens in the sciences. Like if you're ever somebody who thinks like archeology span or history or science is somehow in opposition to God, like you need to, you need to get rid of that thought. There are places where those ideologies and those camps have perverted those things and kind of come in hostility to him. But you know what science invariably proves? Who God is and what he does? Over and over and over again, history does the same thing. Archeology, span man, I love some of that stuff. 
historical theology, practical theology, pneumatology, which is the way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer, all would fall into this statement that Paul's making here. And then he moves from there to verse 31, and he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he ends with Christology. He ends with the way that God has revealed himself in Jesus. And for you and I, as we go through this series, we're going to unpack these things together. We're going to look at how does God reveal himself in creation. And those of you who are like, man, when I'm out fishing, I feel so close to God, you're going to love that week, right? Because there's something about that. But I can tell you that if you went fishing all week and that's all you knew about God, you would only know a small part of who God is. You'd be missing something. Just like you can dive into scripture and you can understand a lot about God, but if you're not experiencing him in your day-to-day, you know a lot about him and you may know him to some degree, but you're missing something. And so for you and I, as we walk through this series, as we learn how to know God personally, intimately for ourselves, we're going to learn how to know him through uh, understanding and interacting with creation. We're going to learn how to know him through being rooted and grounded in his living word. We're going to learn how to know him and invite him into the practical experiences of our life. And we're going to learn how to know him through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we end this series, you'll be in a place where you'll be able to say, man, I know, I know God. And that might feel out of reach for you. And that, that, Pastor, I didn't sign up for seminary classes for the next four weeks. Like it, we'll narrow it down, trust me. Nobody's gonna get left behind. And we're gonna start really, really simple as we close this morning. Really, really simple. Because part of really knowing God is experience accepting his invitation just to come to him. So you and I, we're all at different places in our, in our faith development. We're all at different places in our understanding of God's word. We're all at different places in our intimacy of relationship with him. Some of you have been following Jesus for 30, 40 years. Some of you have been following Jesus for less than a year. And we, we've baptized brand new believers in the last year and they're learning to walk and run some of you are well down the road in your race growing and understanding but when it comes to knowing God more personally and intimately we're all invited to take the same step we're going to do that this morning worship team if you would come forward church family if you would stand we're going to do that as we close this morning In order to to truly and convincingly know God, you and I are invited to take steps of faith towards that end. And one of the simplest invitations that we have is one that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 11 when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. In Luke chapter 11, as, as Jesus is teaching them how to pray, how do you approach God? How do you approach God in a way that you know that you're listened to? How do you approach God with the confidence that he hears, that he answers? How do you approach God with this certainty that you will be received and accepted? Like, how do you do that? When Jesus was answering that, he said this in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And that's where we start today. As we move into this series, as we move into a journey of encouraging ourselves to grow in a deeper understanding of who God is and how he would relate to our lives, we begin with that, that simple step. Would you, would you just ask? Would you seek? Would you knock? How, whatever that would look like for you as a simple step of faith this morning to invite God and to respond to his invitation to know him. Lord, we do that. Lord, we ask. Lord, in this moment, we quiet our hearts and we say, Lord, we are seeking your face. Lord, that we are knocking. In this quiet moment that we are looking to get your attention, to know with certainty that your attention is on us. Lord, would you be with us in this series? Would you give us a desire to intentionally pursue you, to intentionally pursue a closer relationship with you, Lord, that we would grow in a certainty that we know you and that we are known by you. And Lord, maybe this morning to ask, to seek, to knock is taking simple steps for us. Maybe to ask is, is to begin to pray with consistency. Lord, to enter into a dialogue with you. Lord, maybe for us to seek would be to begin to engage Scripture in a new way where we would prioritize spending time in it, where it would be more than just kind of a duty or a diversion, but it would be a pursuit, that we would do it with questions and we would do it with a desire to know and to learn and not simply to check a box, maybe just to even begin. Lord, for any heart here who's been intimidated by the idea of prayer or spending time in your word because it seemed kind of foreign and out of reach, Lord, would you give them peace and would you give them courage this morning that they would take those steps, that they would begin to ask and to seek. And Lord, maybe knocking this morning looks like us fostering a curiosity to actually know you and to grow in that knowledge and understanding. That our first knock would be actually having a curiosity to, to learn and to grow, to move out of a complacency that says, well, what I know is good enough and what I have is just fine, but that there would be something that stirs in us that says, no, man, I want more. God, if there's more, I want more. If there's more of you, I want more of you. If you have more plans and purposes for me, I want more of those plans and purposes to come to pass. Lord, that there would be something in us that is moved, something in us that is moved to know you more. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds from all of the other voices, all of the other thoughts, all of the other ideologies that would look to distract us, that would look to dilute your truth, that would look to draw us away. Lord, that we would learn to see you revealed in creation, revealed in your word, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed in our daily experience. Lord, that we would grow in that. And we would encourage others in that end as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've got a smartphone or a tablet, I want to invite you. Snap a picture of our action steps. 
Each year, our denomination starts the year with 21 days of prayer and fasting, and this might be a great way for you to begin to engage in a process where you are learning to know God at a deeper level. If you would want to do that, I want to encourage you to visit foursquareprayer.org. You can sign up for all of the things there. Join us for those 21 days of prayer and fasting, and you may be like all 21 days. We'll pick a few if you got to start small, and that's okay. Do what you can. And then just make it a habit as we go into this series to ask, seek, and knock that you would know God more personally and int intimately and intentionally this year.